You're listening to the Weed Smart Podcast, where each fortnight we chat about dealing with those pesky weeds. Welcome to the Weed Smart Podcast. This is our last podcast of 2021. So firstly, thank you for joining us. Today we'll be focusing on diverse crop rotations and dealing with resistance. And we hope there's some helpful tips there for you to take away today. So we'll be joined by CSIRO Chief Research Scientist for Farming Systems, John Kierkegaard. He's going to tell us about current trial work he's leading, looking at the impact of rotations on soil water, nitrogen and profit in the face of variable climatic conditions. We'll also hear from Wimmera farmer Tim Rethus. Tim was one of our farm hosts back in 2019 at Horsham Weed Smart Week and a few things have changed in his farming system so he's going to tell us all about those changes and how things are going for him and finally we'll be hearing from Tim Fraser. He farms in Chinchilla in Queensland and he talks to us about how he's managing Group A and Group M resistance on his farm but Pete Newman, my co-host, does join me. How are you going Pete? I'm very well Jess and how are you? I'm good and yeah, it's the last podcast of the year. I thought we could have a little bit of a chat about what our highlight was for 2021. What was yours? Our Weed Smart highlight, Jess, or just in general? Well, our Weed Smart highlight, but you can give a general one too, Pete. We do like to have a bit of a chat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I did get some nice surf up north. <laughs> oh, what a surprise. <laughs> uh, oh, surfing in cactus in South Australia. That was my highlight, Jess. And I didn't get eaten by a shark. That was yeah. really good. Weed Smart highlight was uh, definitely Weed Smart Week in Esperance. That was an easy question. But more specifically was that um, we went to and we got a number of the Esperance growers to speak and to visit their farms and so on. And we said, oh, we want you to talk about the Weed Smart Big Six. And they all said, what's the Weed Smart Big Six? (laughs) And they Googled it and went, oh, yeah, we're doing all of that and some more. So that was really amazing to to see that um, while they maybe didn't have the Weed Smart Big Six in front of mind, they were actually using all of the practices, Jess, and then some and, and having a win in general. So, yeah, that was my highlight. How about you? Well, my personal highlight and I guess a bit of a work highlight too was going to Tasmania. Went for there for ARI for the Crop Protection Forum, but we stayed the weekend. So, yeah, getting to go to, a, to Tasmania for the first time was very exciting. Lots of beautiful places. We got to get a couple of hikes in and that kind of thing. But my Weed Smart highlight is also pretty much the same as yours, Pete, except uh, for Weed Smart Week, what I'll focus on is how the young farmers really came forward and uh, were really authentically themselves but, yeah, just so willing to take the stage and talk about their experience, and that was really special to see. So, yeah, it was, it's been a great year, actually, Pete. All of our team have, uh, yeah, banded together and done the best we could in, uh, yeah, still uncertain times with events and that kind of thing. So it was really good to be able to pull off Weed Smart Week in Esperance. But for this podcast, the final one of 2021, we're going to have a, a few people on who will give a really good overview of things like diverse rotations and that's the first topic that we're going to cover with CSIRO's John Kierkegaard. Pete, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, this work that John's doing? He's doing project work on diverse rotations as we mentioned in the intro there. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, just a lot of the listeners will know John pretty well. He's been one of our champions of, of uh, some really great sort of farming systems research over the years and yeah, what he's looking at here is, you know, should we be growing more diverse crop rotations uh, and how does that go for profit as well as production as well as weed control and so on water use nitrogen all of those things and compared to growing maybe a a rotation with fewer crops in it and yeah so really great to hear him 
talk about that and hear that, oh, without spoiling it too much, Jess, that uh, the diverse rotation is not only good for weed control, as we talk about a lot, Jess, but uh, good for profit and a host of other reasons to grow diverse rotations as well. Yeah, exactly. It's all about the farming systems. And uh, yeah, John gives a really excellent overview. Let's take a listen. In this interview, we're catching up with Zyro Chief Research Scientist for Farming Systems, Dr. John Kierkegaard. John is going to tell us about current trial work he is leading, looking at the impact of rotations on soil water, nitrogen and profit in the face of variable climatic conditions. And we'll get a snapshot of those results so far and the impact on diverse systems on weeds, but also how this looks at profitability over the longer term. John does join me now. How are you going, John? Thank you very much. Very, very well, thank you, Jessica. A little bit wet over here in this part of the world. I'm not sure how you're travelling, but, but yeah, um, very... yeah, we're a little uh, bit of a frustrating end. Guys have got great yields in the paddock, but just a little bit frustrating not being able to get on and, and get them in the shed. But other than that, a very good season for us. Yeah, that's good to hear. But yeah, I've heard that bit stop start with uh, yeah all the rain coming through. But this is a really interesting subject we're looking at today. So you're leading this farming systems research on behalf of CSIRO and New South Wales DPI with investment from GRDC. So this project's now in its second phase uh, after three years of trials. Can you firstly just give us a broad overview of what this project is looking at? Sure. So very broadly and simply, the project's looking at how to turn rainfall into dollars while managing risks, uh, financial risks, weed, disease, soil fertility risks. I guess it's different from a lot of other GRDC-funded work in that we want to look at that across seasons, across a full cropping sequence. We've been pretty good at looking at water use efficiency of individual crops, but obviously in dryland farming, legacies of water and nitrogen and weeds and disease carry from one year to the next. So we particularly wanted to look at this across a series of years, and in this case, a phase of three years so far. Yeah, excellent. And you've got trial sites in various rainfall areas from low to medium and higher rainfall areas. What have you found so far for these different rainfall zones? Yeah, look, it's quite interesting. We have got four different sites. It's probably more the soil types than the rainfall at those sites that have been driving some of the differences. The The rainfall itself for the three years we've just been through, the trends have been pretty similar at the different sites. What's been different has been more the soils. So we have um, mostly red loam acidic soils at three of our sites. One of our sites at Urana is on a, on a more alkaline, heavier clay soil. And that's probably the site that sort of, you know, had a little bit different, different outcomes in terms of, you know, how well some of the legumes have gone, how difficult it's been in the wet years. So that's probably the soil type more than the rainfall that's been driving things. But obviously, when we look at profits, the level of profit has sort of matched the rainfall and yield levels at the different sites. But within those different yield levels, you know, higher rainfall giving higher profits generally. Within that, the responses to rotations and, and other treatments have been pretty consistent across the sites. Yeah, interesting. And yeah, you've, you've been looking at these diverse systems and their impact on weeds. What have you found in, in this space? Is there anything significant that you've been able to uh, note down so far? Yeah, so I guess I should, I should just mention that the, the different treatments, if you like, that are involved at the trials are different crop sequences, so different diverse systems, as you say, but also diverse management. So the crop sequence is the first thing, and that's probably comparing our baseline canola wheat 
barley type rotations with some which include more legumes more grain legumes in the system so diversity of crops is the, the first thing the second thing we've manipulated is the sowing time so we've included earlier sowing of wheat and canola varieties which have been grazed as well as ungrazed and the third is nitrogen strategy so we've had a sort of a, a more robust optimistic nitrogen strategy where we've assumed a sort of a decile seven type finish to each season and then a lower, more conservative nitrogen strategy in our baseline, which which assumed a, a decile two finish to the season. So we've kind of have had those three different innovations, if you like, all interacting within the system, which I guess is what growers are having to deal with. And so in terms of weeds, each trial site and each system is sort of managed along with collaborating consultants using the you know using the best weed management advice that we think we currently have you know using the big six and so in a sense we've managed to control the weeds and i guess because we've been using different systems the best way to compare the weed management outcome is the cost what's that cost us in those different systems and i guess the you know the costs have roughly varied from about $150 a hectare down to $60 a hectare for a sort of weed control and it tended to be the baseline so the sort of cereal canola um, rotations have been at the more expensive end and some of the systems with legumes or fallow or uh, have tended to sort of be at the lower end so i guess the the headline would be that you know we have got systems that are more diverse that are actually costing less for weed control but we've not seen any of the weeds in the systems blow out you know, and I guess that's because we have been using management, weed management that's appropriate for each system. And so it's more the cost of that that's that's the metric we've been sort of looking at. We've been monitoring weed seed banks and so far we've, you know, generally the weeds are, are declining or staying stable and we've not seen specific blowouts. So I guess that means our consultants will be doing a great job in helping us keep on top of things. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And you have looked at profitability over that longer term when it comes to these diverse rotations. So has there been any particular rotations that have, I guess, been highlighted as more effective in terms of that longer term profitability? What have you found in that space? Yeah, look, I think that, again, the headline there for for your listeners is that we've found a lot of a lot of systems that are more profitable than our baseline so our baseline which i mentioned before typical canola wheat barley is what the, the growers nominated as as the baseline sown sown in sort of early may and with a conservative nitrogen strategy that's generally at most sites come out about the mid-range of profitability the things that have tended to be more profitable than that have been early sown crops that are grazed have been quite profitable you know we've had a couple of bad droughts in this three years and being able to graze the crops and make some profit from the from from the grazing prior to harvest was really profitable in those years and then in the wetter year of 2020 last year you know we got the grazing and some good grain yields um, so they've tended to be profitable and particularly with either high nitrogen or with a legume in in that rotation so those early sown graze crops really need good nitrogen nutrition and they have been some of the most profitable things we've done. Of the ungrazed systems, there are several diverse systems which involve legumes, including chickpeas and lentils and, and faba beans, you know, a range of different legumes that have been as profitable as the baseline. And generally that's with a lower nitrogen strategy. So it sort of makes sense. And I guess for Southern New South Wales, where, you know, I guess there's always an, uh, often a, a reluctance to, to sort of include legumes, I guess the work is sort of demonstrating that if you're willing to grow legumes and you have the logistics and the storage and your marketing sorted out, they can be profitable in our systems. 
Yeah, no, that's really interesting to hear. And obviously, it comes at quite a timely situation to be talking about this with imports, particularly nitrogen, looking to be quite expensive next year. This might be, yeah, the, the thing that gets people over the edge to grow some legumes. Do you have any commentary on that, John? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we've, we monitor soil water and soil nitrogen at sowing and harvest every year. So, I've got very good data to demonstrate that the, the mineral nitrogen in the soil at sowing on average is sort of 50 to 100 kilograms of N more following you know, a range of legumes than either a, a cereal or uh, and canola is a bit intermediate. So, you know, factoring that 50 to 100 kilos at sowing and probably more mineralisation coming through the season at current nitrogen prices, that then has become, you know, quite significant. And so it was quite profitable, uh, as I said, at nitrogen prices that we've been experienced for the last three years. So in the next year, at least, if those prices stay high, then it really does, you know, shift that economics even more. And as I said, if you've got a capacity to include the legume and if you take into account those legacy effects of both nitrogen and also water, the legumes, some often left more water in the dry seasons as well. That's part of what's been driving the profitability of those systems with legumes. And usually there was one or more legumes that were actually quite profitable in their own right. They were often similar at some sites to the best wheat or best canola in some years, particularly the dry years. The wetter years, like this year and last year, a little bit more challenging with the amount of fungicide that's gone out on legumes. But um, yeah, overall, you know, over the three years, they've still matched and beaten the baseline. That's really good to hear. And yeah, definitely food for thought for our listeners. Now, as we mentioned, this is now the second phase of this project. So what are your main objectives going forward now? Yeah, so we're sort of sitting on that three years of data. We, we've tried to sort of dig in and get the main points out of that and get that communicated to the growers. Uh, but we've got a lot more digging to do in that data just to, to look more in a more detail into the economics, doing some sensitivity analysis around the economics, and in particular, scaling up some of the results to whole farm thinking. Because obviously, you know, what we're doing in our trials, at a, which is essentially mimicking a paddock scale for example graze crops are fantastically profitable at a paddock scale but there's only a certain amount of a farm that you can have under graze crops so we're working with consultants to basically consider our results in the context of the whole farm so that the messages that that come out are you know are, are more applicable and and more practical and and of course another three years is going to give us even better information on how things vary across you know variable seasons so you know we had Two very dry years, then a wet one. We've got another wet one this year. Let's hope for an average season perhaps for the next two. <laughs> yeah, for sure, definitely. Uh, it's such an interesting project, John, and we've already gone over some of those practical messages that have come out of the research so far. But just to wrap things up, what would be the key practical messages that you want to uh, want the audience to take away from this chat we've had today, John? I think taking a crop sequence perspective and a longer term perspective, it would be that diverse rotations involving legumes can be profitable when you take those sequence effects into account. That early sown grazed crops can be highly profitable, but early sown ungrazed crops, you know, were some of the most unprofitable. So if you're not going to graze a crop if it's for grain only, you can match the profit with a, you know, with a spring crop sown at its appropriate time. And thirdly, and importantly, we found that applying robust rates of nitrogen, keeping a reasonably robust rate of nitrogen or a legume in the system was profitable, even though we lost money in some dry years over the full sequence, keeping that nitrogen rate 
fairly robust, avoided missing out on the upside in the wet year. And I think that's a really important message. And I know it's going to be difficult with prices where they are, but for those last three years, that message of keeping the nitrogen robust so that when you do get the rainfall, you can lift your water use efficiency up to its potential was, was really important. Certainly, John. Thank you so much for giving us an overview of what you've found so far. So beneficial for our audience. And we look forward to catching up with you in the future to hear more results from this work. John, thanks so much. Thanks very much. And I hope the season ends well for your listeners. Thank you so much to John Kierkegaard from CSIRO there, giving an overview of his project on diverse rotations. Pete, we know that the price of nitrogen is quite high at the moment and and that was something that was mentioned in that interview with John. He did talk about the value of legumes. What did you take away from that? Yeah, it's really interesting, Jess, and I see it in other parts of my work as well that I know that there's always a short-term benefit from growing some rotations and maybe the legume crops aren't always the highest gross margin in that year but really refreshing to hear from John that they can be a high gross margin and that they are profitable over the course of the rotation. We're in this situation at the moment we've got crazy fertiliser prices 1500 bucks a tonne for urea at the moment as we record which is uh, just huge in WA where I am we've got very low protein we had a successful year high yielding crops but a lot of low protein wheat it just reminds me about how good it would be to have more legumes in our system I understand the challenges that growers face, but really good to have this farming systems research showing that even though the legumes are not always the most exciting crop sometimes, or sometimes they are, but not always the most profitable crop in the rotation, they really do help the rotation. And, yeah, growers growing legumes are going to pat themselves on the back coming into this next year just with our very high fertiliser prices. Yeah, that's it, Pete. Yeah, it was really great to hear from John. And next, we're going to hear from Wimmera farmer Tim Rethus. Now, Tim, he is a bit of a rock star. We did have him host one of the farm visits at Weed Smart Week in Horsham back in 2019, which feels like a million years ago now. But I still remember fondly how great a presenter Tim was. So he's got a really great farming system, really onto it. But he has changed a few things, and that's what we're going to hear from him today about what structure you about this interview Pete? Uh, I really love the way Tim says by keeping our weed seed banks down that lets us farm how we want to farm we can grow what we want to grow it's like the old Ray Harrington quote Jess of we want the farmers calling the shots not the weeds and Tim has said that in another way and that's what it's all about when we talk about all this weed management obviously it's about resistant weeds it's about seed banks but it is about letting the growers choose the rotation that they want to grow seed when they want to seed all of that stuff. I just really like that focus. And uh, and Tim, the other thing to note here is that both he and his brother are engineers, Jess, so they are <laughs> always at the cutting edge of technology. Yeah, he's very onto it. All right, let's take a listen. In this interview, we're catching up with Wimmera farmer Tim Rethus. And so in this chat, we're going to find out about what's changed for Tim with his farming system. Uh, with inputs looking to be quite expensive next year, as many of you would be aware, with chemical and fertiliser prices increasing, it is becoming really important and vital to assess what you can do to ensure you've got a low weed seed bank. So Tim is a master of this, as we've heard in the past. He uses a range of big six principles which help him get that weed seed bank really low. And so we're going to find out about what he's been doing the last couple of years since we chatted with him last. He does join us now. How are you going, Tim? Good, thanks, Jeff. Good. Looking like another great season, so hopefully I'll, I'll keep smiling. Oh, that's great to hear. Now, it has been a little while since we've had a catch-up. Can you just give us a bit of an overview of, of how you're going? 
Yeah, no, everything uh, is going quite well. We're tracking along quite nicely. Um, we've had a pretty good season here over in Victoria. There's been some suspect sort of frosting towards the end of the year, which hasn't really helped us. And we've had some really weird late rains, which have really stimulated some late weeds. We had a very dry start, which made it very hard this year to get good weed control because we essentially couldn't do any knockdown. Everybody so dry everything. And yeah, now we're coming into a, a late germinating of wild oats, things like that. So some paddocks are looking a bit hairier than I would have liked, and, uh, but we're probably not the only one. So yeah, uh, we, we do what we can. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, as I mentioned in that intro there, we did catch up with you on the podcast before Weed Smart Week in 2019. And Cindy Benjamin, our content producer, also did a case study on you uh, the same year. So we know you've got a really progressive and innovative farming system, but obviously things do change over time. So can you let us know any significant changes that have happened in the last couple of years on your farm, Tim? Yeah, sure. So obviously, Jess, our our big focus is is weeds. Uh, If we can keep the weed bank really, really low, then we can essentially do what we like, which is where we want to be. So um, we have a pretty low tolerance. We're always looking for technologies that are going to help us do that. Now, we have played around with a shielded sprayer in the past, and that that worked quite well for uh, we were trying to get vetch out of lentils in particular, but it worked really good about cleaning oats up too to get some ryegrass out of oats so we could get to export quality. But we had to ditch that machine because we went for a a bigger cedar. So now we've got a bigger cedar. It's, It's 80 feet. And, uh, and the shield spray wasn't matching. And we haven't replaced it yet. Um, we've got some more technologies coming that we think we might use instead of it. But we never know. We might come back. We've been brown manuring, so particularly bad paddocks will come in and, and hit them with vetch. And this is all learnt in 2019. And uh, we'll brand them out just to get a, a weed bank control there. And it's sort of an early knockdown. So it's when the weeds weren't expecting us. Usually they're waiting for us to come to harvest and they believe they've got more time to set seeds and we'll come in early in sort of late August and, and do a spray out and uh, just a chem fallow over summer for that but yeah i guess we've also got we've started uh, wind growing again we went through a big spray topping program with our canola in particular and uh, we've reintroduced wind growing back into the program mainly because of our enterprise and size and the fact that we were having issues getting across everything at once at harvest time so we have canola lentils and barley all ripening essentially the same week and uh, we just couldn't get across them all and we were finding that either canola would get shattered because we couldn't get there quick enough or barley was losing heads. So we've decided to start windrowing some, a bit of, bit of both. So we've windrowed some barley and windrowed some canola. Yeah, right. Amazing. And as you mentioned there, you're really focused on keeping that weed seed bank low and that's what we want to really emphasise in this interview. And, and obviously, as yep. mentioned in that intro, rising chemical prices are an issue for everyone at the moment. And so what's your approach to, uh, yeah, I guess, keeping your input costs low and is there anything different or special that you're going to do considering those, uh, those high prices uh, that, are, that are staring us down the barrel? Uh, I think you've got to look at it objectively. The fertilizer price is probably the one that's going to hurt the most. And it's by far the greatest cost. Ab was telling me that the fertilizer used to be half the cost of the chemical bill. And now it's nearly three times the cost of the chemical wow. bill. So with the prices going up this year. But the same point, um, if you're going to skimp on your fertilizer, you're really going to start letting those weeds in because you're going to lose some crop competition. So crop competition is pretty important. So unfortunately, I think we're between a rock and a hard place. We're just going to go with a standard fertilizer program but the chemical program we're always looking at what we can use that's going to work the worst chemical you can put out is the one that doesn't work so there's no point spending five dollars a hectare and getting poor results when 20 was going to do the job properly so our philosophy is we we have to go for gold and the cost of the fertilizer or the herbicide is, is actually quite low 
relative to the returns overall. So I think you've got to keep your eye on the ball. So uh, we've managed to plan ahead early and secure our stocks. And I think it's really important that growers work closely with their retailers and let them know as soon as they know, like I'm talking, we were talking in October about finishing our farm plan so that we could get to the uh, retailers and let them know what they needed to get. So they had plenty of time to organize it. There's no point rocking up at the last minute because then you will get stuck with either the super expensive product that doesn't necessarily do the greatest job or the poor products that don't really work. So, yeah, um, yeah I think planning is, is really key when prices are like this. And it, it helps your retail. They're not trying to screw us. They're trying to do their best, but we need to give them as much warning as possible. Yeah, good points, Tim. Now, let's change focus a bit and talk about your new planter. Now, you mentioned that there has been that shift. You had to get rid of that shielded sprayer because of the 80-foot planter. Can you tell us about that decision process and and how it's going with that new uh, precision planter that you're using? Yeah, yeah. So, it's a a hybrid. It's based on uh, precision planting hardware so that it's an air feeder essentially um, attached to it. So it, it looks and behaves like a precision planner, but it actually is just using an air seed, which means we can cover more hectares and it's a bit more easy. It, it covers our crops. It's working really well. We've, we've ironed a lot of bugs out of it. We had a lot of issues with the amount of force we were putting through the row units in our dry sowing. We were breaking a lot of things and we we're finding a lot of weak points in the system, but we've slowly sort of whittled them away and it's becoming a lot more reliable now, but every seed is different and it, and it suits different systems. So going to the 80 foot has been a huge saving. It means we've got across the country a lot quicker. We're putting less main wheel tracks out because now instead of sowing every 40 and putting a, a seeding track every 40, we're doing it every 80. Our boom's now at 160, so we're actually doing every fourth row. So we're down to under 2% um, compaction with the sprayer. And that's all about you know creating those, those empty zones which the weeds like to harbour in. So if we can keep off those wheel tracks, the better. And the, the spread will be doing that as well. And the thing we'll be doing with the boom is next year our boom's coming with AIC, which is the AgriFac cameras, green on brown and or green on green. Yeah, so it'll be really good to get the green on green technology out and see if we can start using it to, to nail some of those late weeds I was talking about earlier. That's super exciting, Tim. You've always got your finger on the pulse. And so, yeah, that's really good to hear about. I'm glad that's going well. You're really big on crop rotations as well, and you've talked to us about that in the past. But can you just refresh our memories about your approach to that and, and what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, so we're in a really lucky area in the Wimmera. We can grow a lot of different winter crops. Legumes are really profitable because we grow lentils and lentils are are generally pretty well priced. So probably 35% of the farm will be under a legume every year, which is great. So um, that gives a lot of diversity in our chemistry. So also too, um, with the advent of of Overwatch herbicide, which has been, it's had a troubled beginning, but it is an excellent product when used in the right conditions and with the right machinery. And it's it's really opening up our, our rotation in our chemistry. Instead of relying on like a Sakura, we now have two products that actually can be rotated against each other, which helps us a lot in our rotation as well. So our rotation has a great diversity in legume, oil seed and cereals, but also we can get chemistry rotation in there as well now with these new products that are coming out. Yeah, that's awesome, Tim. And just before we wrap up, obviously, harvesters at the moment, is there anything else you'd like to share about your farming system or anything uh, into the future that is coming up that you'd like to, you know, besides what you've already talked to us about your optical spray tech that's coming, is there anything else that you'd like to share? I think the, um, the, the spray tech will be really interesting to see how that goes. We've really got to launch that. There's quite a few companies dealing with that, like Altera as well as Bilberry. So, yeah, if, if we start getting some actual units on the ground that are actually performing really well, we can really start to see this space open up and we can start targeting weeds, especially over summer, just for that green on brown with 
the right herbicide mix rather than the economic mix. We'll put the correct mix to get rid of the weeds that are there and uh, save us in the long term. We'll be able to put out, you know, double the rate over 5% of the paddock. It's going to be much better than trying to compromise and put half rate out over everything and not do the job. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm not expecting to use cheaper chemicals. I'm expecting to use less overall. But uh, maybe there might be extra passes involved, but I think I'm going to get a better summer result. And in winter, I'm really looking forward to seeing if we can get these algorithms built that'll start picking some of the weeds that are unique to our area and start building on them. They've already got some great radish ones, but we don't really have a big radish problem here. So, yeah, it's sort of in that space. And, and also keeping our eye on what's going on with these harvest weed seed control uh, systems. We haven't gone that way yet. We don't do chaff lining. We try and do the other five of the big six as best we can and, and leave that one out for now. But we're just seeing where that goes. And we've heard some great results that have been occurring with that. But there's also a lot of teething issues as well. So hopefully as uh, more farmers start playing around with that, we'll also get better feedback to our manufacturers and they can start tuning their units to work better. But they've come a long way as well. Yeah, it's exciting times and it's always great to catch up with you, Tim. Thank you so much for giving us an update on what you're doing with your farming system. And yeah, all the best for the rest of Harvest and uh, for next year as well. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jess. Take it easy. Thank you so much to Tim Rethus there. He farms in the Wimra and it was great to be able to catch up with him. He's always so generous with his time and the knowledge that he shares. Pete, really interesting to hear from Tim that they're venturing into the green on green space. What did you take from that interview? Yeah, Jess, as I mentioned before, they're both engineers, but also I'm pretty sure Tim's father and his uncle were really uh, interesting pioneers in a lot of technology themselves and building lots of their own machines and so on. So it just doesn't surprise me that these guys are at the forefront of that cutting edge of green on green spraying technology. Uh, So, yeah, it'd be really interesting to see how they attack that. And also, Jess, interested to hear that they're sort of big five farmers, not necessarily big six, and I've done Harvest Weed Seed Control yet. But yeah, knowing these guys, they'll probably invent their own one, Jess, and it'll probably be (laughs) awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it probably will be. But yeah, a really good overview of his farming system and they do things really well and they've got their weeds under control. So yeah, you don't have to do everything from the big six. You do what you can and and, uh, yeah, adapt as time goes on and adapt with your farming system where it fits for you. So thank you so much to Tim for that. Up next, we have another Tim. We've had quite a few Tims in the last couple of weeks on the podcast, but this time we're hearing from Tim Fraser and we're going to be changing gears a little bit and talking about managing resistance. So Tim Fraser, he's from Chinchilla in Queensland and uh, he farms there and he has noticed some issues with resistance to Group A, which is now Group 1, and Group M, which is now Group 24, resistance, Pete. What did you take away from this interview? Yeah, we're getting our heads around this new numbering <laughs> Trying. System, aren't we, Jess? <laughs> yeah, Group 24 is glyphosate. That's something that will be rolling off the tongue in, in future years. And, yeah, just, just interesting to hear how – look, the thing I got from this was is that he – and I don't want to spoil the interview too much again, but I will, Jess. He <laughs> got glyphosate resistance and then switched to a mix and, and then had trouble with that mix pretty quickly. So in the ideal world, we're mixing and rotating before we have resistance issues. In the real world, often it is seeing that resistance stare you in the face that causes some change. So just interesting and it'll be interesting to just watch his next move and and see how he, he overcomes those problems. Yeah, certainly. All right, let's take a listen. In this interview, we're chatting with Tim Fraser, who farms in Chinchilla, Queensland. He's also a Syngenta Northern Region Operations Manager. Tim's going to today focus on how he's managing issues with Group M, now known as Group 24, and Group A, now known as Group 1, resistance on his farm. He does join us now. How are you going, Tim? I'm going very well, Jess. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for having a chat with us. Now, firstly, can you just give us a bit of an overview of your farming system? Yeah, sure, Jess. So we farm or crop two farms around some chill area. One of those has got some uh, some pivots on it, as well as dry land over on the other place. We are a zero-tool system or predominantly zero-tool system, nine-metre controlled traffic system as well. So that's, that's our cropping operation. Excellent. And so we're going to be talking about a couple of groups, Group M or 24 and Group A or Group 1. And uh, you firstly realised that you had Group M or 24 resistance on your farm. How did you come to realise this? It's an interesting story, Jess. So... Obviously, with Syngenta, I'd been hearing about resistance and I moved up to the, or back to the family farming operation to help out about nine or ten years ago. And on this property south of Chinchilla, it had been conventionally farmed for a long time. We moved into sort of not really full zero till, but minimum till, I suppose, there for a while. So our reliance on chemistry started to, to increase. And I still remember the day when, or a couple of days after I'd done a, a glyphosate application and um, I had some barnyard grass that looked sick but it certainly wasn't dying and I could see you know dead ones beside um, some of these plants and quite healthy ones sitting right beside it and first reaction was bloody chemistry hasn't worked or the glyphosate has <laughs> something yeah. wrong with it but knowing chemistry and, and that very rarely there's anything wrong with actual product you're applying I started to investigate what else had gone on and yeah, we came back with, with Group M um, resistance at the time so it was probably seven years ago, I'd reckon, and it was a bit of a shock because we thought we'd been doing everything right, you know. We, yeah. we um, had been putting out the, the recommended rates at the recommended times, but again, it was just sort of at the, I guess, early stages of how to manage resistance or how to protect our chemistry. So, yeah, that was that was when it, it first sort of started, and what we, we ended up losing was uh, barnyard grass and liver seed grass or uroclara as well very quickly, one after the other. Yeah, right. And so that was seven years ago. What changes did you make to your farming system as a response to that? Yeah, so a lot more spraying. I guess we started implementing the, the double knock system because we were then quite worried with our uh, other groups, particularly group A's, um, which we'll get to later, but we do do or we do grow pulses as well. So it's sort of like the, the sledgehammer comes and hits you in the forehead and you go, right, oh, well, we've got to, got to make sure we, we get on this wagon and and start protecting things. So initially went to double knocks and then feather top rose grass became more of an issue as well. And so we started looking at residual chemistry as well in our systems, which is a bit more of a challenge because of our winter, summer and, and opportunity cropping that we can have up here. And when you start putting residuals in the system, you're a little bit more locked in, but that's how we sort of, sort of went to it initially. And then now with deep phosphorus and potassium becoming more of a, an awareness, I guess, with what it could be holding back or what how it could be holding our crops back. We're actually starting to, to go back in, and implement a little bit of tillage yeah, to allow us to get the deep PNK in sort of one every three or every four years where we're actually coming back and ripping up paddocks. So it's an interesting cycle. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, you did mention that there, there's some concerns there about Group A, which is also known as Group 1. Uh, what prompted the concern over this herbicide, Tim? Well, it's, it's an interesting thing. It's sort of one led to the other. So with Group M's gone, we started to, to do a, a glyphosate and a, and a Group A first knock before we came in with the paraquat as, a, as our double knock. So obviously then we're starting to, to use and hearing Chris Preston talk about how many shots in the gun with the Group A's and all mm. those sorts of things. And it started to, 
well, it's at our forefront, I guess, is, you know, we, we just can't slip up and let any sort of survivors come through. And it's a real challenge with that double knock, you know, timing, getting the timing right. It can get wet or it could have been a bit too dry, uh, wind conditions. It, it is quite a challenge to, to try and maintain doing the right thing, I guess. Where I'm a little bit more comfortable is that we are starting to bring in this one in three, one in four year sort of cultivation practice. So that's going to help as well, hopefully, in the future. Yeah, for sure. And are there any other non-chemical tools that you're thinking about that might fit for your farming system, Tim, or any other tactics that you're thinking about? It's a good question, Jess. I guess we're trying to manage it with rotation as well. Uh, getting away from sort of a monoculture and, and making sure we're, we're looking after rotations, being very aware of, of what we're putting in crop and more of a reliance on the residuals too. I mean, they're another tool for us. What I've been surprised about is finding grasses, particularly barnyard and, and even more so feather top popping up where we've never had it before. Right. Um, and I've been racking my brain as to how that could be happening and, and the only thing I can be thinking about is we get quite a few feral animals across the place, pigs, emus, um, those sorts of things. So it's you, think, you sort of think you've got a paddock under control <laughs> and then uh, if you do take your eye off it, um, it can come back and bite you. So it, it's another thing that we've sort of, I guess it's a constant thing. You, you can't take take it easy once you do have paddocks back where you want them. Unfortunately, I think it's something you've just got to keep on top of the whole time. Yeah, frustrating, but yeah, <laughs> it seems to be the case. And so... It is. For other growers who might be in a similar position to you, uh, do you have any tips or guidance that you would share on how to deal with this impending issue of uh, Group A and Group M resistance? Yeah, I think it, it's something that's not going to go away. It's there. We need to manage it like, like everything. Farming is a challenge and that's why I think a lot of people actually enjoy it. I suppose the only advice I would have is, is don't bury your head in the sand. There's plenty of information out there. To, to access to, to manage these things. It's a known fact. And we, yeah, we've just got to look after the chemistry we have got because we lose one, we lose the next, and we, we keep going. We don't want to uh, don't want to put ourselves in a position where we maybe have to get the, the tillage out more often than what we'd probably like to. Definitely. Wise words, Tim. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It's really valuable, and we really appreciate you taking the time to have a chat. Pleasure, Jess. No problems at all. Thank you so much to Tim Fraser from Chinchilla, Queensland there, giving us a bit of an overview of how he's managing Group A and Group M resistance. And Pete, I really liked how Tim talked about, uh, you know, this issue with resistance. He's not getting down and out about it. He's taking it on as a challenge and, uh, yeah, looking at solutions. What did you take away from uh, Tim? Yeah, same, Jess. Uh, He was just talking very positively, wasn't he? You know, this is Mm. farming. Uh, Challenges come at you. Just got to uh, adapt and overcome, as they say. And yeah, I really like that attitude. And you know, one of those adaptations is is moving to using some soil residual herbicides. Growers in that part of the world typically haven't liked using too many residuals over summer because it can lock them into a particular crop rotation. Mm. But they're sort of starting to get their heads around that by the sound of things, Jess, and and working out how to bring residuals into the system uh, and maintain a bit of flexibility. So. Yeah, I think it, it's just you know it's just another one of those adaptations that we need to make that we don't necessarily want to make, but we make those adaptations and it works. Yeah, certainly, Pete. And that is a wrap on our interviews for this podcast and for 2021. That's all of them. So a big thank you to John Kierkegaard from Syro Wimmera Farmer, Tim Rethus, 
and Chinchilla Farmer Tim Fraser for joining us on the podcast. And thank you to all of our listeners for listening to the podcast over 2021. We really appreciate you engaging with the content. So as we mentioned, our last podcast for the year, but in the meantime, we'd love for you to check out some of the content on the Weed Smart website. And of course, if you've missed a few episodes, you can always go back and listen to the podcast. So we do have our webinar recording up. Uh, we mentioned in the last podcast that we're going to do a webinar on metallochlor usage in the northern region. So that one was presented by Rob Battaglia from Syngenta with our Weed Smart Northern Extension agronomist, Paul McIntosh. So the recording is on the website now. I'll provide the link in the show notes. We also have those two new case studies for you to check out. Jamie and Susie Grant from Jimbo in Queensland are featured. So over the years, they've adopted controlled traffic, minimum tillage, cover cropping, and they've been really vigilant with their weed management. Uh, so that's a really good one to check out. They're doing lots of different things. It's a really interesting case study. And we've also got one on Peter and Kylie Bach from Pittsworth in Queensland, and they're aiming for 130% utilisation of their cropping land through the year. So yeah, they've developed a farming system that really extracts the full value from barley stubble and minimises weed pressure. Those links will be on the website. We've also got a bunch of new Weed Smart Tips videos for you to check out. They're nice and quick and sharp and short. And uh, yeah, Pete, how do people keep in touch with us while the podcast is on a break? Well, just the best way to keep up to date with Weed Smart is to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We'll be posting articles, videos and podcasts on weed control there. And it's a great way to have good discussions, ask us questions and have discussions with other growers and agronomists. And you can sign up for our monthly email blog, the Weed Smart Whip Around. It showcases all our latest content to keep you in the loop with everything weed control. Thanks, Pete. And yes, this is our finale for 2021. So just a big final thank you to all our guests for making the podcast possible over the year. We know how valuable your time is and we really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us and our audience. And also, Pete, a big thank you to you. Thanks for being my co-host this year. It has been a great year for the podcast. Really appreciate you joining me each fortnight uh, we will be back in february so make sure that you are following along and have subscribed to the podcast on your podcast app of choice you can find us by searching weed smart podcast and yeah we are on spotify apple Podcasts, all the podcast apps you could think of pete but yeah it's been a great year hasn't it it has and thanks to you jess you do a lot of work to keep this podcast going all the interviews all the editing and uh keeping me in check uh, <laughs> yeah well done and um, yeah our numbers have grown over the years jess it's great to see and yeah, looking forward to getting back into it next year definitely so yeah have a good holiday season hopefully harvest goes well for everyone and yeah we'll catch up with you in 2022